welcome to episode 39 of the What's Up podcast, recorded on the 28th of August 2019. My name is Martin. I'm Ali. And I'm William. Uh, we're going to go through a sort of few headlines that have caught our eye recently and try to put a bit more science behind the headline. Um, for our regular listeners, though, I should point out we have missed a month. This was deliberate, although we forgot to mention it last time. <laughs> we decided to take a month off this summer to try and get ourselves a bit sorted out. So we've managed to get the podcast listed. We've, we've sort of rebranded the podcast a little bit. You shouldn't have noticed very much changing, but the title has changed a little bit. We're now listed on Spotify and a couple of other sites. Um, we've tried to change our media presence a wee bit. Uh, and it took us a bit on of time. Holiday. <laughs> <laughs> and the idea was also, yeah, take a break, try to recharge the batteries. But we're coming back in here, sitting in a very warm room. Yeah. All of us tired after a week's hard I'm, work. I'm still tired. There was there was there was some moon thing happened last month, so I've been quite busy running around with my Lego rocket, pretending I know more than I do. <laughs> yeah, I think our our relaxing month hasn't been that relaxing, but we're back now. We're back to our normal and schedule. The sun is shining. Yeah. Uh, so we'll try and go through a few stories. The uh, headlines this time. We're going to cover some misleading headlines, some odd headlines, and some super fresh headlines as well. Super. We're kicking off with the odd headline. Uh, there was a headline that hit the press in the last couple of months, which was about tardigrades on the moon. Ali, what? Oh, this, this was a fun one, but it also is, is, it ties in with something that's kind of definitely worth talking about. And there's a few questions involved with this as well. So we've already talked about the Bereshit lander. Have I pronounced that correct? So Israel... Bereshit. Bereshit. Uh, Israel were trying to land a probe on the moon, which is kind of cool because first nation other than Russia and uh, America to do so, I think mm -hmm. is that. And What's the first private. Or, 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 yeah. private uh, well, company. China have now done it, obviously, as well. So sorry. Mm -hmm. uh, and first private initiative. Yeah. yeah. Didn't work. Well, no, it did land. Made a moon-shaped hole. <clears throat> mm -hmm. Yeah, it landed very hard. Uh, yeah. And uh, it turns out that it was carrying an interesting payload. Uh, so as well as science instruments, uh, it was also carrying something by the slightly shadowy titled Ark foundation and it's to do with uh this is a foundation that's uh, microsoft is one of the backers apparently if you go to their website and uh, the website's it's not got all the information for somebody like me who wants to dive in and go but but explain uh, and they have the very noble goal of trying to preserve and archive all of human history knowledge you know, for, for future generations and or alien civilizations to uncover when they arrive. They can, they can find one of these arcs that the Ark Foundation is making and uh, ostensibly they are figuring out ways of preserving data for a very long period of time. So none of this, do you send a DVD or solid state storage? They're actually coming up with fun and arguably quite in innovative ways of miniaturizing data. So like nanoscale Libraries, remember microfiches? Yeah. I'm saying remember, like I've used one. But in spy <laughs> movies, you yeah. go to the library and then you go and you get your newspaper on the microfiche and you zoom in and you find the story and you've figured out that the killer is actually the same person from three generations ago. And wow, story. Um, so it, it's similar to that. So they're shrinking. <laughs> just, oh, just rambling. Uh, they're shrinking it down and they're putting it in some kind of like epoxy resin and it's, you know, stored um, forever. Arguably so, yes. And so they're calling these libraries, although I kind of feel like as a library, I want to be able to visit and dig out a book. These ones are going to be on the moon. So um, uh, it turns out that data is not the only thing they're putting. So apparently the moon one had a lot of the English Wikipedia on it, uh, plus one or two private collections, which I thought was interesting. And then um, they also were bringing samples of human DNA, which apparently were hair follicles, and these tardigrades. So if you don't know what a tardigrade is, watch Star Trek Discovery and then shrink that thing down. <laughs> yeah, we're not saying Star Trek Discovery was an accurate description of them. They no, can't actually but, travel through the mycelial network. But they do look 
like what they look like. They, they, they do look. They, they look like the most six, alien things. Six-legged blobby things with sphincters for faces. That's what they look like. And a tiny hand on the end of each leg. And they're kind of cute. Uh, I don't think. No, no I I'm, think, with I think I'm with him. I'm with him. I really cute. I might not hug one. Um, but oh. you know, I think the real size is like less than a tenth of a millimeter on average, something like that. Yeah, um, that was a bit disappointing when I found that out. I was really excited. <laughs> like, oh, look at that. That's amazing. Oh, it's tiny. That's a microscope. So, you know, this, this leads you to this story, which is the thing that the, the press sort of picked up on, which is that the tardigrades may have survived. And by survived, that sort of got blown into there's now a little happy colony of, a colony of tardigrades living on the moon. And that's probably absolutely inaccurate. They've elected um, a new king. But yeah. the, the tardigrades were picked um, by the Ark Foundation for reasons which are not clear on their website. They said there'll be more mm. information coming soon. On Just, just to check, the, when you say that, the, the kind of idea of taking that particular species rather than the individual uh, well, members they, they of the picked, population. Obviously, human DNA. They weren't like interviewed. There wasn't some kind of like CV submission process for each tardigrade. I would love to know what the decision process was there because they were like, yes, we're preserving all of human knowledge and we're, we're going to send some DNA samples, but let's send some tardigrades too. And so, I just want to see the selection process for the tardigrade astronauts, you know, all the training montages, yeah. the little helmets they had to wear getting in their CV. <laughs> you know, gyroscopy things. Oh. I think we're joking about all this, right? No. <laughs> So the, they the, survived. The tardigrade did, right did the stuff. library survive? Well, but again, surviving is a relative term, oh, okay. right? Because they were uh, in what's called um, the a hibernation crash? state. You dehydrate a tardigrade. This is one of the reasons they were probably picked, and I won't know yet until that website updates. Um, but the, they were probably picked because they're very hardy life forms. So they're microscopic, but they can survive in extreme conditions. And you can dehydrate them. And this puts them into the super survival hibernation mode. So Jewish. they sort of curl up into a wee ball. Uh, and then the minute you bring water back into the situation, they can revive themselves. And some of them have been done revived after really long periods of time, like 30 years or something stored in cold storage, and you can bring them back to life. It's kind of cool, right? Brilliant. So tardigrades don't win the most extreme living organism that's around, but they are interesting. Well, so this is why they were sent. So it's the dehydrated ones have been encased in this resin as well. And so they are part of the package. So though those might have survived the force of impact. But does this but mean there's no liquid water on the moon? Right. So it's not like they're going to spring to life. They're still Plus, asleep. They are resistant to UV, but they're not immune to it. So ultraviolet radiation, which is if you're on the surface of the moon, they're going to be bad. Uh, unless you're in a shadowy crater. That's another story. Um, it will eventually kill them all. So the, the, you know, so even the dehydrated ones can't survive being blasted by intense UV light for a long period of time. So uh, I, I, over time, they will be dying off as well. But the, the story itself is interesting because um, it's one of those things where do we care? Uh, the moon is there. We're pretty sure the moon is sterile. Um, but then it raises this whole question of forward and backward contamination. Mm. And there are rules in place. And nation states, i.e. The, the NASA space agencies and the ESA space agencies, are very keen to follow those rules. But private companies, um, I'm not a space law expert. At some point, we will try and sit one down in this room um, so you can hear from one. But the, they're not necessarily beholden to the same rules. So there is the Outer Space Treaty that we've all agreed on for some time now. In the 60s, they put this together. Basically about non-proliferation. Can't say that. Uh, nukes in space, Ken. Um, but they also had planetary protection folded in. So one of the articles in there says we are not going to unduly mess up an environment that we're going to go to. Um, and likewise, we're not going to bring stuff back to Earth without proper procedures in place. So, so this company so, basically just went, yeah. Well, the moon is, uh, you don't need to follow stringent guidelines for the moon because it's not, it's considered a very interesting ah. geological place, but it's not considered a place where the story of uh, life and living organisms is potentially you're going to have 
either the risk of contamination that environment or bringing it back to earth so the rules are it gets really complicated and I, i'm sorry i didn't have enough time to read into everything but the moon is kind of like a grade two grade one is like the sun it's like pfft. Uh, you know, throw whatever you want into the sun. Grade two is the moon. Which, yes, it's pristine, but it's also kind of inhospitable and sterile, as best we know. Um, arguably, the surface is like that. Maybe if you drill down, not so much. So that's where the questions come. Uh, then you get into grade three and grade four. So grade three's um, Titan isn't even a grade three, but Titan should probably be. Yeah. So they need to sort of update the definitions as well. Um, but basically, Mars has the more stringent ones. Mars is arguably has places on Mars where you could conceivably even have liquid water survive. Um, maybe below the soil for sure. So if you have missions that are going to go to there or use Mars as a flyby, you run the risk that your mission might crash into Mars. So you have to follow more stringent protocols. And by protocols, I mean you're trying to reduce the bio burden on your spacecraft. So you're deliberately not sending tardigrades to Mars. You're sterilizing your spacecraft um, so that if and when you do go to Mars, A, your science experiment isn't going to have false positives because you brought Earth bacteria with you. Uh, and B, uh, you're not going to. Um, basically mess up the biosphere that you just landed your spacecraft in. So these rules get taken really seriously. Um, well, unless you're Elon Musk. In well, which case, you just send your Tesla there, you know. But early. again, the Tesla was never designed to fly near any other bodies. So it's if it had, he might have got in trouble. Okay. But yeah. I know, <laughs> so why but did they send them? It, was that's just what I don't know. I don't know why they thought tardigrades and DNA. I mean, I get the library thing, and that's quite a noble effort, I think. It's, it's I, I get the DNA. Yeah. If you want to leave a record of the human race. Yeah, but why did you choose that? You could have done a picture. Or, you know, got the DNA chain shrunk down in, in code form. Yeah, yeah, but like that's that, then going like to be that bit in Jurassic Park. But, but again, the, the DNA yeah. sat in ultraviolet radiation up there. It's not going yeah. to DNA anymore. Right? Well, yeah, I assume you, you record the information, not the. Um, the unless it was supposed to be in a, wee, in a wee protective box, but cosmic rays could still smack into it. So I suspect if you had a, a small shielded box, you'd have the maximum lifetime you, uh, available. Mm. Putting the actual DNA there means you don't have to decode human. Coding, but we have. Oh, I see. Sorry, we have, but an alien civilization might not use the same, might not look at it in the same way we would. They might have their own way of understanding it, or they do the Jurassic Park style thing and mm. clone us, and you know we can run around free on a on a desert somewhere on their planet, on a desert island Breach. somewhere on their planet yeah. until we break out and you know, life finds a way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I need my factor fifty for that. I think. I still don't quite get it. Tardigrades is weird. Pub, yeah. There's pub, quite a lot pub, I don't pub, get. Basically, well, they, they haven't really put their reasoning for the DNA samples of the tardigrade on the website as best. I mean, you know, I mean, to be, I should maybe give them the benefit of the doubt, but I just, I was kind of hoping for more on the story when I went digging. Um, but I can, it's more fun in a way because the, literally as of last night, the Rosalind Franklin rover, so the ExoMars rover for 2020 launch next year, um, is just being shipped off from Stevenage, and it's about to move to um, somewhere in Europe. What's it called? The I think it might be Aztec. That's one of the major um, contributors for ESA. Stands for, but that sounds right. So it's basically yeah, it's, European in it. They're basically they're going to make it pretend that it's on Mars and make sure it's it's okay. But what's really interesting is it has to follow very stringent, very stringent um, decontamination yeah. protocols. They blast it with radiation. Well, well no, oh. you you can it, some spacecraft. You, you we've done this in the past. You build it dirty and you nuke it. So you blast it with radiation, you can bake it in an oven for a long time, and you can do, you know, you cover it in, in like hydrogen peroxide or whatever, and it kills everything off. Um, but that's the build it dirty and launch it clean ethos, which isn't so good because inside it could still be a teeming mass of critters in, in sealed chambers and stuff. So they want to go one better because this mission's designed literally to look for 
life either existing or not existing and um, whether or not it's going to find any. That's, that's a, another debate. Um, and I don't think anyone thinks that's likely. But they're looking. They're looking for organics. So you can't just kill life and then go because that dead stuff is still going to be on you. And then when you start running your tests, you could potentially have contamination there. Build clean. So right. you build clean. So the clean room is crazy clean. How clean is your average clean room? You've been in clean rooms, Martin. The, you know. Uh, I, I can't describe it in any useful manner. <laughs> the, the clean rooms we tend to use are only kind of bunny suits, boots, and at a push we'll go full body bunny suit and a face mask so your eyes are still exposed. But I know you get the really high-end ones which are like... Well, the, the, <sighs> the, there was an ESA video that had them in the bunny suits, so mm. still humans. It's, they're not in some kind of crazy uh, you know, virus chamber where the suit is like plugging into air but at the same time they're not allowed to sneeze <laughs> in the room so they get sent out and annoyingly the humans are the biggest bio burden yeah. that that, that rover will experience More um, robots. but they're, they're constantly testing it and they're swabbing the room and then this led me down an extra rabbit hole which was like apparently um so there's there's a database of swabs that are from clean rooms so isa and nasa have been doing this for some time and you can go online and order the cultures and you can go and look through them to see if there's weird stuff in there because clean rooms are some of the most sterile places on the planet, more so than an operating theatre, for example. And apparently there is a strain of bacteria. I say strain. It was a new genus was discovered, uh, only found in clean rooms. And it's a hardy life form. And as far as the engineers were concerned, they didn't care as long as the biomass was low, so your contamination was low. But as for actually doing the analysis and seeing what's surviving in your clean room, that was how they managed to find it. And it might exist elsewhere, but only in the clean room do you see nothing else is surviving except this one little hardy organism. So obviously it's of interest to microbiologists and what have you. So I just thought that was a nice story, was that there are some things that still manage to survive, even if you take every single precaution. Um, but the plan is to minimise it. So you just, yeah. Um, so it's going to be cool. As we were saying, life finds a way. Life finds a way. Thank uh, you, Jeff. Uh, 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 are you gold blooming? <laughs> Okay, so we'll come away from an odd headline to a probably equally odd but slightly misleading headline. There's a couple of them that I've noticed recently. Um, and the first one that I've come across, I don't know why, but my phone, you know, on your phone you sometimes get headlines from various newspapers under, on the Google side of things. Um, and these come from various newspapers, most of which I don't read, but I try not to ignore because I like to see what they're saying. Um, I won't name the paper. I think we can. <laughs> but there's a lot of stories about asteroids and, you know, um, asteroid twice the size of the shard will skim past Earth next week. Um, asteroid the size of the pyramids of Giza will come flying past Earth. Um, you know, asteroid, you know, X many ton asteroid will skim the Earth's atmosphere. We only saw it two days ago. I feel like we could add in, you know, like 50s serials where it just kind of, there is a giant thing about to attack us. And you see people yeah. going, ah! and then it's all scratchy and yeah, just like, like panic mode. Announcement. What I don't understand is, yeah, this happens all the time. And also, they're not that big. Twice the size of the shard. Yeah, that's not, that's not that big. It's just, mm. And when you say skim past the Earth, you mean might come marginally closer than the moon is. Quite often isn't. It's like, oh, it's, always, it's only three times the distance to the moon. You're like, well, no, we're really not, I'm not lying, lying in bed worrying about the moon hitting us tomorrow. Yeah. You know? And that's, that's closer know. than these things are going to be. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but it seems bizarre because this is not news. This is, happens all the time. But I don't know why it suddenly hit the headlines. I assume there was a story about a particularly near pass, loosely described near pass. They got a lot of clicks and they've realized that that's how you get more clicks. Yeah. And of course, this comes back to more clicks, more advertising revenue, more money. And that has been this like splurge of stories. I, I think 
we're getting better at finding these things. I mean, literally, we're building telescopes to do that, which we quite often try to piggyback off mm. and do nice science with. Um, but it's, there are remits. I think NASA has a particular remit. I don't want to say NASA, because loads of other people are doing stuff, but NASA is one of the people who often does a lot of things. Um, to track X percentage of things. And it's, it's almost like a government-mandated requirement mm. that one of the things NASA should do is look for 99% of objects bigger than a kilometre. 97% of objects which they think they've done yeah. yeah and so they, you know obviously the numbers aren't made up entirely by politicians but <laughs> in collaboration with them they, they come up with a sensible figure of what could be tracked so we have all these telescopes now which are basically just sitting dedicated to watch the skies and look for varying moving things and I, because we're getting better at it I guess these stories are more frequent as well yeah. in the past those things as you say they've been flying past the earth for the last probably 4 billion years um, most of them miss um, and we didn't have a clue we didn't was, matter was there one that got revised you know because in the past there's been one that sort of got just a slight bump up because most things are in uh, the no threat or where it was yeah, called the there no was threat there, category yeah. so for a minute there it goes in the next category up which is a tiny bit of risk and everyone yeah. goes oh my god and then they run the numbers and it's back down and yeah. they know where it's going to go and yeah it's fine there was, there was one that was a story of oh if you know there's one that oh if it gets perturbed yeah, might come into it range yeah. it's like yeah but the chance of it being perturbed are tiny Sure enough, it's even smaller. Like, again, this is a bit of a null story. Mm. Um, and then slightly adding fuel to the fire, um, because there has been a few stories about asteroid Bennu, which Osiris Rex has reached and is now mapping. And asteroid Bennu is one that could come quite close to Earth. And NASA have sent a probe to look at it, amongst other reasons to kind of go, well, what's it made of? So if we did have to deflect it, how could we do it? Yeah. Elon, you, yeah. So e Elon Musk came out with a, <laughs> with a comment on Twitter of, so some NASA tweet saying this is great, but we have no defense against asteroids, which again, fairly true, hasn't really mattered so far. People are working on it all the time. But because he pointed this out, again, media frenzy about why do we have a defense against this? What are NASA doing if not defending us against this? Obviously, we just need to find a defense. It's like, oh, come on. This is again, this has been on the cards for years. Why is it suddenly a big thing? Because Elon Musk. Yeah, yeah. Everything's, nice. a, everything's a clickbait. I need yeah. to now go and check on this tardigrade thing because you know I do wonder if if the original press we, release was like, yeah, some of them might have survived in their dehydrated state, and everyone damn. went, oh my god, there's a colony of tardigrades on the moon. The damn people looking at clickbait stories. We've chosen to talk about two of them straight away. Yeah, we have. And yeah. say, oh, that's kind of what we stories. do. We, we yeah, the things right. that pop up on my Twitter yeah. feed are the things yeah. I, I I talk about. Actually, kind of almost literally the point of this podcast. We're gonna I check think. ourselves, yeah. chat. <laughs> Sticking, sticking with the clickbait headlines, <laughs> uh, there was another one. Yeah, there was another one about uh, a star older than the universe, uh, which had come up a few weeks ago. This appeared um, in a number of different places. And actually, it was one of the, you know, that, I find that metric of like people come and talk to you and say, oh, what's this thing about this star? I'm like, oh, hang on, I haven't read that news story. I need to go. They don't talk to me like that. <laughs> <laughs> so... I went to have a look about this particular story. Um, I spent quite a lot of time reading the wrong story, which was kind of intriguing. Um, so there has recently been an announcement discussing the age of the universe. Um, the age of the universe is considered to be about 13.8 billion years um, at the moment. Um, that's right, isn't it? Or 30.7? 30 30 I think it's 30.8. Uh, got revised up a little yeah, bit. Yeah, Planck put it up a bit, didn't it? 30.8. Uh, oh, there is a particular star called Methuselah. I think I said that right, which is about 14.4 billion years old, plus or minus about 700 million years. So 
within the error bars, it's fine. Um, but there's something a little bit kooky about this. And I found myself reading a few stories about this particular star. And then realized that suddenly I was trying to look for the recent paper discussing this. So I could actually look at the paper rather than the news story. And it all pointed back to the same story from 2013. And I think what's happened is there's been another uh, result, which is more, in some ways a more intriguing result, which was discussing trying to measure the age of the universe using the results of the gravitational wave detection from a neutron-neutron star merger, which we spoke about a lot last year, last year, um, which was an awesome event. And That was the gravity wave detection. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, you just, you just... Um, and you can use this in some way because it's a bit more like a... In astronomy, we have difficulty measuring distances uh, when something is particularly far away. Um, and we sort of, we talk about a standard, um, sort of a ladder uh, for distances. And we measure something nearby and something a little bit further based on that thing nearby and something based on the thing which is a bit further. And you kind of build up this uh, map of distance. But to it distance can get a little thing. shaky. It does, and it gets pretty shaky. The intriguing thing about the gravitational wave measurements is that you can get a more precise distance measurement. Um, and there's, there was something recently which was sort of hinting at the idea that if you used this neutron-neutron star merger as a way of measuring the distance, um, that the you could actually just give a slightly different age for the universe and that this would actually um, allow Methuselah to quite comfortably fit within our age because the universe would have been a little bit older. Um, which actually I think is a much more interesting story, but somehow all the press articles got kind of a little bit merged and discussed the star story because it's much easier to describe and much more sort of immediately kind of headline grabbing mm-hmm. um and so actually the i think the more interesting story which is embedded within this got slightly lost uh, which i think is quite I, I don't know if that's good or bad I, I think i think it's a bit of a shame in some ways but maybe it's a clickbait it got people to to go and look at the read the story because star older than universe is a lot easier to, to discuss than so, bizarre yeah. astronomical event kind of hints at seeing something a bit kooky it's still the first of That's many, cool isn't it? For the, the gravity wave things is going to be more. And yeah. we've only really it's seen point one. one. But then yeah. the same with the old stars. I mean, how many stars have they dated in the same technique? Is this the, like the weird outlier that everyone likes? Or this is, is a particularly just, odd outlier. Um, a lot of the time we get our measurements of stellar ages based on populations of the stars. So you look at a large group of stars in like a, like a globular cluster or something. And from that global population, you can get a really good precise age on, on the group. This one is kind of an isolated object. It's actually relatively nearby. It's only 190 light years away. Um, and it's moving pretty quickly across the sky We've, it, because it's, so, um, it's relative motion to the background stars. It's quite high. Um, so it's a star which has been studied for a long time. And, but it, you're trying to work out the age of the individual object um, out of its population. Um, and that's, ki- that's quite tricky to do. Um, I'm trying so to think. You don't it. have much data to work with. You've just yeah. got what you get from the star and that's it. And yeah. then you have to then make some assumptions, Do, I guess, about yeah, how stars and get model made. model the thing and, to death, yeah. effectively. Um, and, and those modelling things all seem to hint at it actually being ridiculously old. Um, it's quite a small object. So, you know, our star will live for, what, 10 billion years, roughly. Yeah. It's about 70% the mass of the sun. So it, it, could la- it could live as long as the universe. It's just surprising it's start- it was formed so early. Sometimes it's a shame um, with the error bars, though, because you're kind of like, well, if it fits the uh, thing that you already think is the right answer, then you're kind of like, well... It's not that exciting, really, is it? An error bar is an error bar, and and somewhere in there is probably the safe answer. But as I say, I think the intriguing thing, and actually something which I want to go and dig into more, maybe we'll come back to it, um, and I don't know why it didn't get more of the press, was the fact that there was this hint that you have a different way of measuring the age of the universe based around gravitational wave measurements, 
I wouldn't even have the first idea I, how you do that with that data. I started trying to read the actual paper <laughs> and was like, I'm totally out of my gravitational depth. Um, <laughs> and, but I think that's quite a cool story. So hmm. uh, maybe just pointing at a. Are we, at is it story. still too early for universities to have courses that are explicitly about the observational science that is now gravitational wave observatories? Because I'm not sure we're there yet. I think we're still yeah. working it all out yeah, from first. It's still pretty new, isn't it? Yeah. And I, I feel like I'm going to have to go back to school on this. <laughs> yeah, I think we all are. <laughs> um, it's funny, actually, because there was a, um, a thing popped up this morning. Hang on, you're about to preempt his. Next no, no, we can, we can go on to the, the, the fresh headline. There you oh, go, yeah, carry so on, carry on. Yeah. This, this was as fresh as they come, and this one isn't clickbaity. So if anything, I'm going to be the one flowing <laughs> the clickbait banner because I haven't really had the time to digest this thing. But LIGO this morning announced... Um, LIGO being... Uh, the, the Gravitational Wave Observatory. So they're, they're, very, um, they're getting good at this, and so they're up to ooh, 10, 20 yeah. discoveries now. So as they get alerts... They alert the rest of the astronomical community. So their public alerts are available. You can go and see what's being alerted. And it tells you roughly where the error bars are on the sky, where this gravitational wave event came from. And um, I mean, I, I get very briefly, that's if you smack two massive things into one another in the distant part of the universe, that creates enough of a ripple in the fabric of the universe that we can actually detect that ripple here on Earth a long time. I love uh, that expression. It's a ripple in the fabric of the universe. But it's kind, of, it's kind of the best description you can get for it, but it yeah. just so sounds... So it's kind of, yes, a, a, a cosmic kind of... And you, you feel the universe move, and you, you can measure it. Uh, and that's what's happening here. So every time they see one of these signals, they go, whoop, we've seen a thing. Um, but they don't have precision, so they can't say to astronomers who use optical telescopes to go and look where that happened and see if there's any optical follow-up. This is what made the neutron star merger really exciting, because we, we got both, yeah. and we want more of those. So they tell us really quickly. So the alerts that came on this morning, two of them happened, but very, very similar positions on the sky, like almost overlapping, but not quite, and within 21 minutes of one another. And there aren't many... You know, that'd be one heck of a coincidence if this was two completely separate events happening in different places and different times. So getting all relative, you're kind of like, okay, well, that's, that's not impossible, but it's improbable, shall we say. Um, Massively. One of the other things that I've seen people on Twitter talking about, and I sort of, I, I got added into that conversation this morning, I was like, oh, this is interesting, is, is you could potentially have evidence that this is the first dual event because it, it was a lens signal. So, um, so not only did you have two massive things smack into one another that make the ripples and do the, huh? um, you've actually got something else in between you and it that bends the light. Well, I say light bends the signal in the same way that you can do this for um, optical sources as well. So I do a little bit of microlensing with what I do, um, or at least try to. This is quite a dense subject. So when you're referring to lensing, this is gravitational bodies, large gravitational bodies that sit between you and the thing you're looking at, which bend the light and essentially magnify it. Like yes. you had a lens there. Yes. So you get free flux in terms of photons, but it also has a similar effect for the gravitational Which waves. But here's, but the important takeaway here is that you can have multiple images of the same object yeah. and we can see this. So um, you, you might have heard of something called an Einstein cross. If you haven't, Google that now because they're kind of cool. And so an Einstein cross is a quasar that's being lensed by a nearby galaxy or an intervening galaxy. The galaxy itself, all the mass of those stars clumped together is enough to bend the light of that distant quasar, the quasar is not perfectly aligned with the galaxy. So you see four separate images of exactly the same object. And it took us a while to work out that was even happening. Um, but then that allows you to work out exactly how massive that galaxy is to be able to do that. So you can run Einstein's equations and you fold the numbers in 
and it gets incredibly complicated and you need computers to help model that for you, but you can get information that you wouldn't otherwise be able to get. And you're getting extra photons from the distant quasar. So quasar people like me get excited uh, and you can, you see time delays. So one image can flash and then maybe a hundred days later, the second image will flash and then another 50 days later, the third image will flash. And it's all because the light is traveling a little bit of a different length to come at you from all of these different angles. If you want to lens your own things, you can do this with a wine glass. Just look through the bottom of the wine glass at a distant light source and you can create circles and warps and weird things. So this is a very... Slightly different effect. <laughs> Instantly, it's, if, it's, if that didn't make any sense process. to you, that's because you were lacking Ali's hand gestures. Oh, honestly, in this I'm room, that was, that was like clear mad. as crystal. And I, I realise we're going into this uh, too deep for what is essentially a quick touch on Yeah, I think but, it's just... A... But the, the, the take-home is, is that you could potentially create a time delay between two images. So essentially, LIGO might have seen the same signal twice, but coming from slightly different directions on the sky because something massive helped to make the light... Tra um, the, make the signal... Stop saying light because that's what I use. Yeah, that's the. I think um, nice to me. So we spent a long time before the, the podcast chatting uh, and trying to r realizing. To be honest, I was realizing how little I understood about gravity. Me too. Um, <laughs> which and then Martin was like, "This this should be on the podcast. Shut up, but stop talking." Um, because the thing I find extraordinary about this idea is I never considered that a gravitational wave can be lensed. So the the analogy which we until uh, today, me neither. <laughs> no, I, the the analogy which we quite often talk about with. Um, gravity in space-time and the one you always see in classrooms and on youtube and so on forth is this kind of stretched spandex latex mm. sheet or whatever and you put a big weight in the middle and that the distortion which is what your mass does to space -time. you just shout gravity ta-da and everyone's um, like oh at least i am because you're sort of throwing away one dimension there well <laughs> yes um but then you can show how something would behave in that gravitational or that bent bit of gravity gravity but no bent bit of space by like rolling a marble past your weight and you see the marble gets bent. And that's exactly what the, the, the light ray does when it gets lensed. It kind mm -hmm. of, it should be going in a nice straight line, which as all light does in normal space. But if the space is particularly distorted by a mass, your little marble or your light ray goes in a curve. And so you get, you can see round corners effectively, mm -hmm. which is the lensing. But the <laughs> fabric space-time ripple malarkey, which is a gravitational wave, is the latex itself. So the ripple in the latex is also rippling along and then getting bent as it goes around something massive, which is just fantastic yeah. and mind-boggling. I've been, been tending to think about everything as signals, yeah. but it's maybe a bit too early for us to have the right analogy for this because it's obviously something we're, we're now going to have to talk about. Uh, we'll get an expert in. That I think we'll come back to this. Yeah, Definitely it would be will. nice. But I think everything is signals and signals travel at the speed of light. So when you're doing stuff, that signal can only move so fast. And the minute you put gravity in the way, gravity changes the direction yeah. that it's coming from. Can I, um, can I say that my hand gestures were really good there too as well? Uh, <laughs> yeah. So um, none of you seem to mention that, but I thought mine was just as good as Ali's. So, I mean, there, there could be some other more mundane reason, that, but if it was lensing, that's potentially very interesting. And people on Twitter who are smarter than I am seem to think it's not entirely implausible. So um, stay tuned. Might hear a bit more on this, but it's uh, another rare thing in a class of rare objects already. And woohoo! I love the weird thing. <laughs> Clickbait! <laughs> I think at that point we're going to signal the end of the podcast as well. Thank you very much for listening. And wait. Thanks all. Bye. Bye.